creeds and criticism meet. of Reference Podcast. So when we first met, uh, it was one of those weird instances where we had met beforehand uh, at in the cafeteria at Biola, apparently. I don't remember this very well, but you... Uh, there's I, not much to tell, like... You remember, you just didn't like that I was ignoring you, because I wasn't trying to ignore you, I was yes, just into my book, and I, I was filtering out our friend David and Tiffany, getting into this discussion, I'm like, oh, there he goes. Uh, basically, I was involved to argue with Dave. No, you weren't. Uh, I don't remember. No, we were on the outskirts. Yeah. I think you and I even sat across from each other. We, we did. We didn't even say anything. Uh, yeah, you tried to engage me in conversation, and I was reading a book. Yeah, you weren't interested. And you thought, say it. I thought you were super stuck up. You thought I was stuck up because I was reading a book and not paying attention to him. This random person I never met before. And didn't even say anything to me until that very moment. So, but we're still, common courtesy demands you at least be, you know, polite and uh, engaging with someone. Like, going out of my way to yeah, engage going you. Out of your way to. I mean, oh. have you seen me? Like, why would you want to talk to me? Like, uh huh. You know, this whole, like, oh. It was probably a book on the biblical canon, to be honest. Well, probably any. Book. And that takes precedent over everything. <laughs> Bible joke. Uh-huh. So, what were your thoughts when you first, like, not this met me? Because clearly... I had no opinion whatsoever. Yeah, I was no interested opinion. in my book. Yeah, I, I, was a, I wasn't even a blip on your radar. I was a guy staring at you awkwardly. I didn't even notice. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so what was your first impression when we met? Um, well, since I was, um, had it in my head that I was supposed to keep you away from my little sister, because supposedly you were in love with her. Oh my gosh. Um, our friend was actually in love with my little sister and thought Nick was a rival because he looked me up on Facebook. He was trying to find me on Facebook after our awkward lunch no, get together where no, I was ignoring no, him. No, 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 that's not right. Okay. You, I, I had no idea who you were. Right. And so I was. This happened like way after that. There was like months. Like, Jeez, I left an impression. No, I wasn't even looking. You're the one who like reached out to me. Eventually. Yeah. So You're getting your stories mixed up. No, I, my stories are not mixed up at you all. Are. I was absolutely right. Okay, so you were on Facebook looking for. I actually don't know. Uh huh. Could have been anything on Facebook, honestly. Whatever. He was looking me up on Facebook. He found uh, my sister who looked like me. David said, Do you think she's cute? And he's like, Yeah. David took that as Nick is in love with Kathy. I need to keep Nick away from Kathy. So he went and told me that he just doesn't think Nick was a good influence on Kathy and I needed to take uh, keep of him course. away. He's the one that got Dave to watch Sin City and Rome and all these horrible shows that now has turned Dave into the horrible human being he is today. So, yeah. Bull crap. Sorry, Dave. Okay, well, yes. So he did eventually find me on Facebook and I forget why I added 
I know. Have you seen me? Like, I'm gorgeous. Why would you want to, like, stalk me on Facebook? Maybe I saw he was friends with David. I don't know. I don't but, know. no, I forget. I forget why I added you in the first place. I mean, I'm just going to keep going back to Maybe the, I was doing recon office. work. I was like, yeah, you know what? I do need to keep tabs on this guy. I mean, have you seen him? He's gorgeous. She could totally fall in love with Nick. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yep. Yep. So, your impressions were... Oh, yes. So, eventually we did go and um, get lunch together. He seemed to be having a tough time on Facebook. And I was like, oh, poor Nick. Pity the beautiful man who's got everything going. Pity the beautiful man. Yeah. Well, yes. So, like, well, I'll have lunch with him and I'll know more. So, I keep him away from Kathy. So cold-blooded, like... I was so nice and like naive and like oh. he absolutely took advantage of me. Whatevs. Yeah. I was, I was delightful. What are you talking about? Well, I didn't think he was so bad after I met him. After the lunch meeting wasn't a day, clearly. <laughs> after the lunch meeting, what were your thoughts as you walked home? Like, or back to your dorm? I was like, huh, he seems nice. I'm trying to remember my thoughts. I think I was walking and skipping. I'm not sure exactly oh which one it was. I think about it. A, a pretty girl like wanted to have lunch with me. Like that just made my day. I wore like my super tight T-shirt to like show off my my guns, which were non-existent at that point. I was wondering if he just didn't have clothes. <laughs> I mean, typical Viola dude, no capacity for doing laundry either. So it could have been like my last like shirt. He had his Christopher Hitchens book conveniently out because he thought it might scandalize me. Yep. Little um, did he know, I'd already read it, and so I paid no mind. It was autographed, too. I still have the autograph. That is kind of cool. The autograph. I got to talk with Chris. That was, that was cool. Hitch, funny guy in real life. Yeah. I miss Chris Hitchens. Been really nice to have him around for the past few years. Been very entertaining. We had a good, like, first meetup, though, and I don't know. I invited you to some other things. Yeah. Seemed nice. Yeah. And then you fell in love with me. Uh. And I had to be persuaded that you were worth my time and, oh. you know, you're worth wifing. Let's put it this way. At one point, my sister Kathy asked, do you ever go out with Nick? I said, no, never. Fast forward years later. So who won that one? <laughs> Nick won that one. <laughs> That's right. I don't win many arguments, but I won. To, that to one. be fair, to be fair, I was not thinking in that way about him because I thought he liked my sister, and that's just kind of weird and gross to me. I mean, your sister's nice. She is, but <laughs> I'm, I'm delightful when you're talking. Oh, yeah. So how does submission, mutual submission, or can mutual submission 
or how does that, I should say, even that more narrower than that, how does relate the relational dynamic work on this, on the issue of uh, egalitarianism, complementarianism, when husband and wife are not on the same page? It's much easier if the husband, given the power dynamic, it's much easier if the husband is the one that's egalitarian. Why is that? Um, because otherwise, if your husband is a firm complementarian and continually thinks you need to be under his authority, gotcha, and you don't believe that, that's a very apparent tension. Gotcha. Okay. Um, not that there's not tension otherwise. Um, and here's the thing too. I mean, in a, I think in a healthy relationship, you should both be taking initiative. Um, that's something that I think even you and I had to figure out early on when we were dating. Just dynamics like that, among other things. Yeah, I was, wasn't even an egalitarian at that point, so... Yeah, like, you know, we both, you know, just needing to take initiative on things, learning, you know, what the other person wants you to take initiative on, um, versus um, really just what each other likes, dislikes, annoyances. Yeah. But, yeah, I would say it's a lot harder if the husband is, is complementarian than if the husband's egalitarian and the wife's complementarian. Um, given the people that we've actually known who have been in those set situations. Yeah. Um. There's also an issue, too. Uh, this might be... Uh, this is a broad statement, so it's, it's not meant to speak for everyone. But most of the guys I know who are complementarian are very stubborn about it. And most of the women I know who are complementarian tend not to actually be that stubborn. Because you, you can have an actual back and forth. They're the ones I know. Uh. I can have a back and forth with a lot of them. <laughs> See, I have interacted with my kind, uh, yes. and no, women can be the most vicious in terms of enforcing um, gender hierarchies. Oh, that's true. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. The most vocal proponents of complementarian are, uh, what's her name? She's at Southern, and the other... That's not name names. Okay. Anyway. But yeah, some of those strong complementarians, I think, are women, and... I wonder why that is. Well, I mean, we could guess. Well, it's not surprising. I mean, if you have a people group that buy into something, then it has to be bought into some degree by everyone. There's, and there's, there's winners and losers. And, I mean, let's just not assume that just because something's ultimately worse for one part of the group that they're going to be like, oh, you know, it all makes sense. You know, I need to rebel against the system. They may think it's really good for them somehow. Yeah. And it, they it, may have built an identity off of it. They, it might just be what they're used to, and that's how it's always been, and that's what works. Yep. And you also have the aspect of fear, especially in the way Grudem and Piper portray complementarianism. is a slippery slope idea, so this must be held as strongly, tightly, and vocally as possible. Otherwise, you're giving way to the pornographers and all these horrible people that want to just take over everything. Yep. And so, yeah, most, yeah. Well, that's interesting. But it's a the thing is, um, I don't think we're we're called to mutually submit to one another. Yeah. And so that means yes, you know, submit to your husband, even if he's a complementarian. I mean, we we have that um, not not that Paul was speaking to complementarians. There there was no complementarianism in his time, but he did tell women to submit to their husbands, and this is a very clearly patriarchal context. Um, so yeah, um, now if your husband is abusing you and you're able to get out, get out. Like seriously, don't yeah. put up with that. Um, that's something 
else entirely. But if he's just um, thinks the man is ultimately in charge and, you know, pulls rank sometimes, you know, I, I would say, yes, submit to him, but to a point. Like, you know, if he's going to pull a Mark Driscoll and be angry that you cut your hair the way he didn't like and freak out on you, like, don't, don't take that. Yeah, you also have the issue, too, of... Um Submission just kind of, in the way that in Christian theology, submission is not something that should be enforced. You can't actually enforce it, because then it, it, that is abuse. Um, well, yeah, that's right. You can't make someone submit to you. And it's supposed to be, um, isn't it reflexive? Submit yourself? Yeah, yield yourselves in love. To one submit another? yourself in love, yeah. Yeah, so it's something that you're supposed to do of your own accord. Yeah. And, and it's modeled after Christ submitting to to others, so. Yeah, and it assumes that women have the virtue of, of determining what is appropriate and what isn't. And so, you know, it's not, people get hung up on the passive, it's, pro, it's, passive verbs are kind of going out now. It's more of a, basically you see it as middle something you have to do in cooperation with something. Yeah, and really most of everyday life is not going to be, I don't know, my husband broke my nose. Like, it, it's going to probably be more um, one person wants to do something one way and another person doesn't think it's the best. Like, I would say try to find a balance and always try to give the preference to your significant other, you know, even if they hold to a view that's different from yours. And functionally, I would say that most complementarians in practice in the United States act very egalitarian. Yeah, on 99% of things are egalitarian. And even on that 1%, like, I, I don't think it's actually something that's consistently enforced. So, I mean, that's, I mean, most, yeah. And that's something I've actually put to my complementarian friends who are married, is how are you actually different than Allison and I, functionally? And they've admitted, to their credit, we're not. But it's the principle. I'm like, principles mean action. That's how you act. You know what I mean? All, if you're acting in accordance this way, that means your principle is actually, you're not following your principle. You know what I mean? So for me, I want, this is just this is just utterly disconnected from what you're actually trying to do. Yeah, and I think it's frankly a lot more difficult for these hierarchical setups to survive um, in the in this time as well because more women are actually educated and more women are actually working sometimes by necessity, yeah. and that's a whole other discussion um, on economics and whatnot. But you also have the issue. You just don't have the same. Um, hierarchical relationship that was assumed natural between men and women before in our country, especially in the 50s, where um, the man had to leave the home and go out and bring food back, you know, bring money back, and the whole household is dependent on his money. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a very different setup, and so it's, women are still getting the short end of the stick because they're not getting help on the whole with household work, children. So they're, it, it's called the double shift. They work a long day's work and come back, have to take care of the kids. Um, so they're, they're, it's more, I think that's a more realistic dynamic. And I think it's easy to get bitter in those situations if you have to, um, if you're not getting the same help and support that you need. And you also have the issue too of uh, education. Uh, women, now have a lot more access to Greek and are educated in Greek and know more of scripture. And so it's not as if 
egalitarian theology or just general Christian theology isn't easily accessible. And so you're having more people engaging on this topic in a more educated manner. And so, which is good for everyone, I think. The more educated the church is, the better. Yeah, and not even just in terms of learning Greek or Hebrew. Um, really, overall, women are more educated. Um, we didn't drop out of school to get married, most of us. Yeah. Like, a lot of us have bachelor's and master's degrees. So, you know, we've had, we, we can follow lines of reasoning. Um, there's not that same... I'd say in the, bar, in the broader culture, there's not that same power differential that's been enforced. Yeah. Um, and that's a good thing. And that, that was a move that our, um, I'd, I'd say, foremothers and forefathers made in this country to try to get women access to these things. Because before, the battlefront used to be church, home, and society. Yeah. Um, and so you had, in the 19th century, this push for women to have the vote and... It, it was a very deeply religious movement for the most part and very evangelical. So, yeah. um, yay, you know, they, they won to some extent. Now, you know, of course, years and years and years later, we have all these aberrations. But, you know, I mean, that's that's how history works. Yeah. Um, complementarianism is, you know, if you look, depending on what perspective, is an aberration from other um, paradigms. So... That's just what's going to happen. <laughs> so, yeah. In, in summation, uh, if your husband is complementarian and you're egalitarian, do your best to follow Ephesians 5. But not, but as Paul assumes... In and Colossians 3, because sometimes you are in messed up, stuck situations and you cannot get out of it. Yeah. Um, and so there's a whole different ethos for that tied to being thankful to God and recognizing that the power is ultimately in the Lord's hands and not in the person that you're stuck in this abusive relationship with. Yeah. But pull a, you know, 1 Corinthians 7, if you can get out, you get out. Yeah, if you can be free, be free. Yeah. I mean, you'd be the Lord's free woman, you know. It's probably what God would prefer you to be in anyway. Yeah, and we're speaking specifically in, like, cases of, like, um, well, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, it's being in a, a slave or um, if you've got abandoned by your spouse or... And I think abuse really does go into this category. It can be a little more gray if it's verbal abuse. It's not the same as having your life threatened um, yeah. directly. So, But as best as you can, fulfill Ephesians 5. Uh, you have the virtue given to you by Paul and Holy Scripture too determine what is appropriate and what isn't and so don't do it to say you know satisfy his ego because that just that will not help the situation yeah don't support sin yeah and so if that requires you getting out then get out if that requires you confronting him confront him but, no don't i mean don't leave your husband because he has an ego well no not i wasn't saying like that like i'm, I'm, I'm speaking of abuse like if you're in abuse get out but if a guy's got an ego then that. And there's grace there, you yeah. know. <laughs> I got ego too, so although I'm not a complimentary. You're just a Nick with an ego. Only Whatever will I do with you? <laughs> stay married to me, please. I'll get it's okay, I'm on my tenth clone. Yep. So I'll just switch him in for another one.
Okay, question. Uh, things we wish we had known before we started seminary, like kind of surviving the terrain and all that sort of stuff. Hmm. What do you think? Yeah, and mine is a little more complicated because um, I did Bible and theology as an undergrad. I almost went into be a psych major and changed at the last minute. Um, so, and then I'm also a PhD student, so it's a little bit different, maybe. Um, I didn't know I was going to get viciously attacked for being a woman all the time, but I, you know, I mean, frankly, um, I would say years of abuse beforehand that was non-gender related, I think it didn't bother me so much going in. I just expected to be treated like crap, and so it didn't ring as any different, unfortunately. Sad reality. Yeah. I think I wish I would have known, uh, when to, uh, I, I wish I had taken the time to get to know the professors I had before I took the class. Mm. There's certain professors I would not have taken. Oh, yes. Oh my gosh, yeah. One in particular who I will not talk about. Uh, had I known, I would have taken a completely different class and probably got a better grade, or the grade that I actually deserved, I believe. But I think learn. Uh, I would have take. I think taking the time to know exactly what my professors expect. That meant means getting a copy of the syllabus early. That means all that sort of thing. Uh, second thing I wish I had known was uh, because well I had it easy because I knew exactly what I wanted to study. I wanted to study New Testament, and Fuller's a great place for that. But I wish I had take. I, I think had I known. Uh, I wish I had known a lot more of the literature before I started. So, for example, you know, E.P. Sanders' big book on Paul and Judaism, written in the 70s, is a watershed book. I wish I had known that so I could have sat and just read that over the summer. Or, you know, certain other books that are groundbreaking books that kind of paved the way before I even got to seminary. Wish I had known what to read before that. Yeah, I lucked out a bit, having done an undergrad in Bible and theology, because yeah. I had, like, tons of time on my hands and would just read a ridiculous amount of things. Like, well full volume of Josephus. Let's just go through it. Why not? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I just, I, I lucked out on that. Um, but yeah, anyway, what you were saying before about, there's always some dead classes is the thing. Yeah. And some people are a lot better at maneuvering and making sure their grades don't suffer because they got that one person that for some reason has ethical problems with giving A's out. And even if you do everything they've required of you and more, they just don't believe you should get an A for some arbitrary reason. An A minus is a good grade. I'm like, not if that's not the grade you actually worked hard for. Yeah, so what, yeah, I think I'll, I'll say this because maybe I can be a little more careful. Um, what Nick's referring to is he was in a class where um, he was getting 100% on all of his assignments. I, I mean 100% on all his assignments. It, it, ridiculous. Um, and it was in a subject that he was um, becoming somewhat of an expert in. I will say that. And he got graded down on participation, even though he was constantly asking questions and engaging. And usually, you know, participation's a here you go. Um, you showed up, you breathed, there you go. But yeah, and he, but he was um, participating quite a bit. But for some reason, you know, this professor is like, no... I think I'll grade you down on here. And so he got dropped um, quite significantly on that and said professor could not be reasoned with or even, like, give a proper explanation of, oh, well, here's what was required. 
And the thing is, some professors do that because they don't want their grades to look so inflated, and so they deflate them artificially. Um, so yeah, anyway, like, there's always gonna be someone like that wherever you go, and the key is to try to do some, um, research ahead of time, either online or asking people that have taken these classes before to know who to go to. Because yeah. I don't think you should avoid hard classes, but if it's like not a difficult class and you still can't get a good grade just because, let's just say maybe some other things are going on, then that's a problem. Well, for example, like I'm taking Colossians and Philemon with Dr. Marianne My Thompson, who's known as one of the best teachers at Fuller and one of the most difficult. I happily will... I, Worth it. I, yeah, I have no problem getting the grade I believe I deserve. If I put in the work and I got an A- and it's been reason that you deserved an A- for these reasons, I have no problem with that. Uh, I don't like being graded down on something that was entirely out of my control and seemed entirely arbitrary, even when I reasoned with the professor about it. Yeah. So part of it is just you need you might just need to get involved with, with at a, like the like on Facebook with a bunch of people like other students and just ask all right who do you have who do you recommend who do you say avoid like the plague yeah yeah and definitely sometimes you can't sometimes you can't avoid it because it's your last quarter and you're just stuck and that's the only one offering it that yeah. happens that I will say this has happened to me at TED's before um, I uh, had an insane. I basically had an insane quiz every, I think twice a week, that was just impossible to pass. Um, every one of my peers got under a C- minus on every quiz. Um, we usually got like D's and such, um, except for my one friend who said he has a, he told me before he had like amazing um, short-term memory. Well, he did. He, he scored like hundreds on all of them when the rest of us were getting like C minuses or D pluses or Fs. Um, and, you know, we're all good students. It was just... And my, my, my friend was like, yeah, I don't remember any of this later. I, I forget everything, you know, I supposedly memorized, but... And that's just, that makes, that says so much about the professor. Because as a professor, I want my students, everyone to get an A, but I want them to work for it. You know, so I don't, I, I, for me, if I were a professor, I, the last thing I want to do is fail somebody. Uh, I mean, if that person deserves to fail because he or she didn't do anything. Yeah, I didn't learn that. anything in that class, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, again, like, everyone has some dead classes. and yeah. um, That's my biggest fear as a potential professor. I don't want to be that dead professor. <laughs> I don't want to be that dead professor. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes it sounds good in your head. Just don't do it. Yeah. Don't, yeah, don't, don't. And that's something I've noticed with some professors. They get a doctorate and they're insanely bright, insanely smart, but the standard for a master's class is much higher, closer to the PhD level than it is for a normal master's class. And so, you know, the, the standard is just insane. Yeah, like, I almost dropped the class because I did everything the professor wanted, and it, and I exceeded it, and, he, and I got a compliment on it, and I only got a 95. Uh, then, of course, I, I double-checked my sure I got a 95, and oh, yeah, sorry, clerical error. I'm like, okay, fine. Yeah, sometimes there's actual errors, too. Yeah. Like, I've been at TA, and I actually appreciate it when students will ask me, you know, why did I get um, this grade? Um, sometimes, like, I can be more lenient, too. Like, there was an instance where I had a very strict rubric I had to follow, and a student made a good case that they were actually trying to convey a certain... Um, bit of content and they just were not they just didn't do it well enough so that it, it didn't 
seem like it. And so let me just say after some very careful consideration, I was able to reverse their grade somewhat by giving, um, minusing them points on clarity um, rather than content. And I don't, that's not something I necessarily make a habit of per se, but the thing is they made a good case and I could see what they were trying to do. And so we were able to reverse it. Another thing though, is sometimes there's information that you think maybe you should know, but you don't. Um, I have had students um, appeal to Wikipedia or, and I know other peers that have had this happen. The student appealed to Wikipedia, YouTube video, or put like this random like bizarre photo in the middle of their essay or their art, their um, assignment. And, they just didn't know any better. And unfortunately, you know, at a certain level, you should know better. Um, and sometimes you just have to take, as a student, you just have to take the cut. But you have to know, you know, in your heart that you weren't just graded down arbitrarily. But this is something significant that you can account for in the future and do better. Right. And it's something, too, to consider is if you're going to do academic papers what you are going to do in seminar is get S the SBL handbook on style yep. and just read it. Like, it's just so you know, because by and large, there's no variation. If there is, the professor will tell you. So, and also too, don't be afraid to ask the professor if you can go over on word count. Uh, you know. It, yeah, I, um, I didn't know any better coming to Fuller. Um, there were a lot of things I just didn't know because every school does things differently. Like, um, at my seminary, like, if I went over, I got pinned like penalized really really hard um and so I came to my first class at Fuller and didn't realize I could go over and so I was actually taking out a bunch of explanations and things that I needed in my um weekly assignments and I'd get graded down it was so frustrating and then finally once I just cracked and um I think I asked Joel I said can I go over I just cannot do this assignment without and he said yes and <laughs> Surprise, surprise, he liked that assignment. So I was like, oh. Yeah. In my, I, all I had to do was ask. Yeah. In my Galatians Greek class uh, that I'm in right now, I just, because I'm, I'm finishing my paper, and I'm like, this is going really far over, especially regarding footnotes. It's like four or 5,000 words in a 3,000 word paper. And I just emailed him, like, hey, one, can I go over and two, do footnotes count? And he said, basically, uh, footnotes don't count, which is a blessing. Uh, and two, uh, he flat out said, and don't make me check the word count, which basically means don't write a crappy paper to where I'm rolling my eyes and just waiting for, waiting for it to end. You know, it's kind of like a movie. Like you, don't make me look at my watch. You know, yeah. waiting for the movie. Based on that sort of, and that's just one professor. And he's been really, he's been, a, he's critical, but he's been a very helpful professor. I do like that standard a lot better than just. Although when people are just starting to learn, they need the training wheels like this length. But I mean, at a certain time, like it's as much as you can write to get your argument um, put out very well and then yep. also to, I don't know, it, it can't be too short because I, I, I don't know, for my end grading though, I've had, let's just say I've had some amazing papers that are a little under what they, you know, in word or in the syllabus should have been, but they accomplished their tasks so well and concisely. Um, but then I've also had like ones where, I don't know, they just got tired and stopped. like. <laughs> So, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> it's hard to say. 
right. Angela Smith asks on Twitter, what is the best actual definition of authentic? Too many resources, too many opinions, attached to too many agendas. Is it Pauline? Synonymous? A late edition? All right. So I think um, you actually can narrow um, the meaning quite a bit. Um, it doesn't have to necessarily be agenda thing, although agenda has been quite involved. This is the only place it appears in the New Testament, so it's already more complicated, and so you have to look outside of Pauline and um, New Testament literature for the meaning of the term. And I would say to, um, yeah, let's let's start there, Nick. Yeah, it's. I mean, any word is conditioned by its use in context, so... Uh, but not reduced to. Yeah, so you've got, I think it's five or six uses around the time of Paul that are at least relevant. And so that's not a big pool of, of lexical data to work with. Yeah, and I believe pain um, is the one that shows that, um, it, was it 300 years after... I think it was St. Basil's Epistles in like 370 CD or something like that. Yeah, so you don't want to go too late with some of these things. Um, you restrict yourself to about 150 years before 150 years after. So that's probably the best range. Yeah, because language changes over time. Um, so, I mean, if I were to say something is awful, I'm not saying it's full of awe and wonder. Like, maybe I did. I would have before if I was using the English language. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, stick stick as close to Paul as you can. And in that vein, I think you can come down with down to at least um, one or two. I think one more preferable. Yeah, I think the idea it, it, it's a current in the Pauline literature and uh, in the pastorals or one Timothy specifically is in a context of prohibition. I don't think Paul is in the habit of prohibiting prohi prohibiting positive things, things that are good for the church. You know, why why would he do that? So whatever Paul sees them doing. The character of that uh, influences the language he uses. Therefore, authentic is used in a negative context. Yeah, and it's not so. Basically, it's not as simple as um, plugging in. Um, if if this is a, po a positive term, you know, by nature, therefore positive. So, like teach, teach is a good thing, right? Well, not in the context of First Timothy, where you have false teachers. Yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, in terms of um, pain, Philip Payne. Uh, man and Woman, One in Christ. Um, he has an excellent study on this. Um, check it out. Um, the two that seem more likely are um, between domineer and then usurp uh, slash assume authority. So it's basically this idea that you're taking authority that does not belong to you. Or uh, I was talking with Cynthia Westfall on this. She said control is probably a good control. Yeah, I've, I've, yeah. Let's just say control is a good one for it too. Yeah, it's, it's whatever someone is doing to another person is clearly not a good thing. Therefore, authentic. Therefore, you have the corrective of to learn in verse eleven. And so the word itself uh, seems to be only used in in context of uh, abuse or authoritarianism. Uh, or domineering. There, there's maybe one extant use, and, and I, it's not Christian literature, I think it was secular literature, where, uh, or not Jewish, yeah, it's, it's secular, it's not Jewish literature, Christian literature, secular literature, where it's used in, it could be used in a neutral sense, but that's only because of the context being in a neutral context, a descriptive sort of thing versus, you know, something closer to a whole. It's, so it's well, a is it used of a person in that context, or uh, is it an object? I think it's a person. But it's, but it's also the entire context is 
uh, as I recall, uh, I'm trying to think, it's been a while since I've looked at Authento. Uh, Jim and Hubner's study, I thought, was particularly compelling. Uh, he showed, I think, in every instance, it's, it's used in a negative context or a violent context or some sort of... Yeah, basically, it doesn't have a positive connotation until 300 years after Paul. Most likely. I mean, and if Paul wanted to talk about other... It, well, it doesn't. It's it's yeah. murder. It, it's along those lines. So, no, it's, it's not positive until much later. Yeah, it, I mean, the use in the Septuagint, or not the Septuagint, is in the Apocrypha. And even then, it's not a pot. It's something that parents are doing over their children, but it's in a context of abuse. Yeah, so not positive. I don't know if it's murderer. I mean, English translations say murderer, but I'm not sure that's the best. Like, again, this is a cluster of negative terms. Um, yep. And it's, I, I would say the core of it is, I mean, you can say um, taking authority in such a way that's improper or not yours. Um, notice improper or not yours. Now, of course, the risk of saying it's uh, more of an abusive authority is people think, um, oh, well, you know, automatically if, you know, maybe it's just because women are doing it, you know, hence be basically we were using two English terms to try to qualify an ancient term. And so sometimes people like to parse the authority out from abusive authority or assuming authority. Right. And that's why um, control is perhaps a another preferred way of putting it yeah. but I wouldn't think of this too much as what is the, the English equivalent because um, in translation you don't have one-to-one -one correspondence despite the claims of some translations <laughs> yes despite the claim of the new inspired version yes um, <laughs> uh, yeah so I would say I would say um, you're on the right track if you're going for control assume or usurp authority. And I would check out Philip Payne's um, research to back that up. Yeah, and Jamin Huebner's article in the Journal for the Study of Paul and His Letters is an astoundingly good article. Uh, kind of, it's it's a great overall, overall view of the literature and uh, the debate itself. And it comes down firmly for egalitarianism. Uh, very strongly in favor of the the, the best uh, reading, which is a, a domineering or controlling yeah, I think for Payne, Domineer comes in, like, second or something yeah, like that. Yeah, his preferred. Uh, but all egalitarians seem to agree that the, the word is being used in a negative way to prohibit something. It's not a positive use of authority. Yeah, and actually, I think the King James Version also usurp. does... Uh, is it usurp or domineer? Usurp. It's one of the two. So, you know, this isn't um, a egalitarian invention. Um, so, eh, I would, yeah... Yeah. Check out the research. It, it, I think it's not so close between negative and positive as people make it out to be. Yeah, and also too, it's it's. I, I think the problem too is hinging a lot on a on a word study. Yeah. Whereas the whole flow of the passage, properly interpreted, does not support a complementary reading. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it, that's. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Because I mean, we can parse out. I mean, we can like look at the word teach, and we can find all these positive uses of the word teach and. But, I mean, let's look in context. Again, false teachers um, who are um, taking authority upon themselves that they weren't supposed to have. They're not preaching the gospel. They're, it's accompanying all sorts of evil behaviors, too. Um, so, not good. And, you know, in this context, women are being told, um, or to be allowed to, you know, let them learn. 
No, they, it's, they must. They, yeah, so yeah, let can sound too permissive, but it, it's an imperative. Yeah, it's the only imperative in the passage. And I tend to interpret that not as, well, I tend to, I tend to see it as, as still a little bit of a re rebuke, personally, in this context. I tend to see it as, uh, before you're a teacher, you're a teacher, you must learn, kind of thing. Yep. So that's kind of how I take it. Um, and of course, um, learning in quietness is something that a well-bred student in the ancient world, and really I'd say at any time, is ex it's what's expected. Yeah, I mean, and that's the exact form of the argument. If you look at the Septuagint use of to, the verb to learn, I mean, it's something all of Israel does, it's something individuals do. I mean, so it's a good thing to learn. Like it's it's your the intent of learning something is to cause someone to change a behavior, is to grow in the knowledge of say when God tells Israel to learn His statutes, or to uh, or when Queen Esther tells a man to go and learn something about her opponent, you know. So the whole idea of these of parsing these words to the point where they are uh, reducible to the created order paradigm of Thomas oh, how Schreiner, about that? Yeah. Of, of Thomas Schreiner, for example, or, or others. It accidentally made its way into a patriarchal paradigm. Yeah. And so when from you, our century. When you assume a, a certain outlook on scripture, you can find anything you want, which is why we had slavery for 2000 years. The Christians were, a lot of Christians were cool with it. And so the question also has to deal with hermeneutics and to what extent you allow the flow of the passage to dictate your presuppositions. And the, answer, the other way around. Yeah, and the answer is, look at the flow of the passage as a whole, and of course, do word studies and other things. So it's, again, like, have them all together, because words can't mean anything, you know, if we just play, because there's another tendency to want to, um, I would say, read background or other things into the text and not being open to lexical range. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like, you need to... I don't know. Think both and. That's that's our that's our simple answer. Take, take an integrative yeah. approach to to the entire passage and don't just get hung up on one word. Because that that used to be my my uh, thing was I, I thought I knew authentic was negative, therefore this that and the other. But I never actually read the full totality of the passage until much later. So. Yeah, and I would also add. Um, I think she was also asking if it's an interpolation. Um, or I guess is it Pauline? Is it a, yeah? Is it a late edition? Um, I I'd say um, no. The term is not a later insertion. Um, not in this passage. I, you may be thinking of a similar pa a similar sounding one in First uh, Corinthians fourteen. Um, that one is an interpolation, um, and that's another. Uh, Philippines contributed some original research on that. Um, so you might want to check that out. Um, whether or not this is Pauline or not, um, no, no, this is not a Pauline term in that Paul, no Paul and neither Paul nor actually any of the New Testament writers are actually using this term. Um, whether or not Paul wrote this um, epistle is a long debate. Um, I, I tend towards yes. Um, Nick, what's your thought, I'm, briefly? I'm firmly on the fence. I'm waiting for Stanley Porter's commentary to change my mind. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's, uh, these aren't, and either way, even if Paul himself did not, um, pen it, nor use a scribe, because that's another thing in the ancient world, yeah. um, that accounts for style differences, it's very regular to have a scribe write something for you. And they and, have a lot of freedom to write. Right, and Paul will go out of his way sometimes to indicate what he is writing himself, um, in his own pen, 
Which, I mean, it, again, I think it kind of more presupposes scribes than anything else. Um, but either way, like, you... It, it's part of a Pauline corpus for a reason. And so either way, I think you would say this is... Yes, this is a Pauline writing overall. Yeah. It's not his preferred term for authority relations. I mean... Yeah, definitely not. The Corinthians 7 the premier one of the premier texts, and neither person, neither spouse has authority over their own body. Yeah, exousia is the one that's the preferred term for authority. And actually, interestingly, um, this term... Uh, if I, I believe um, if you were to look at one of the echoes in First Timothy, um, where um, Jesus gives himself up as a ransom for many, that's a little bit before our passage. Um, if you were to look that up in the gospel, um, you would actually see that um, Jesus is telling his disciples not to try to lord it over others like the Gentiles do. And he uses the word um, exercise authority the way they do. So very interesting. And there's also a, a great text in First Corinthians, you know, the authorities or the principalities, the exousia, or exousias, I think that's what it is. The, yeah, the so, noun form, it's used to, as a negative thing. And, and yeah, so even if it were a positive, quote, positive term, like exousia, um, exercise authority, then even still it's been used negatively in the Bible, so, yeah. yep. I mean, the, 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 the last I checked, the principalities and the powers are annihilated at the end of time, so. Yeah, there is that. All right. Thank you for your question. We appreciate it. It's actually, it's a very good one. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Another question. Um, was the temple of Artemis or Diana really a factor in the argument or the cause of the heretical teaching in 1 Timothy? Um, ha, ha, ha. All right. So, yes, um, and you're right. This um, She writes later that, yeah, this has been answered a, a zillion times. Um, uh, yeah, so... <laughs> One of the complications, one of the many complications of this passage is there's a bunch of um, background information that um, is being applied into this passage. Um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. Um, I think, I think the best course of action is actually is more to go to the theological flow of the passage. So, for instance, um, we don't need to know what the particular um, heretical teaching was in order to understand um, Paul's overall view here, I think, because he lays out some rich theology, um, which I'm doing as part of my project right now, and so I won't say too much on this, but um, let's just say he does a lot of comparisons with Christ and um, the work of Christ and salvation and, and God um, all throughout before we even get to our passage. And, of course, in the intro conclusion and heavily throughout the passage, or sorry, throughout um, 1 Timothy, uh, he's also says that he's addressing false teaching. So we, we know those things already coming in, and we know that it's specifically, it's not just um, saying things that are um, less kosher. It, again, it, this is this is stuff that's actually distorting the gospel and the fundamentals of the faith, Um Hence, you know, talking about Christ, but it's also tied to uh, behavior as well. Um, so I would say that is more primary to me than is this the new woman cult? Is this neo uh, Gnosticism? Is this Artemis? Um, that said, uh, my personal thoughts are that yes, the Artemis cult is in the background here. Um, I'm not so much in favor of doing a whole reconstruction and then reading it back into the text, per se, 
but I think I think it is helpful to know note that this is that the seventh wonder of the ancient world. It, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world um, is here, the Artemis Temple, and there's a whole history here, um, and it did um, involve um, essentially well, um, male priests had to be castrated. Um, it was very. Um, I would say pro-woman at the expense of man, um, kind of cult, and it did have, she was the goddess of childbearing, um, and so that's in there too. Um, at the same time, the risk is if you ignore the um, rich theology and within this passage and just think in every, if, and just parse out and everything and interpret it only in light of the Artemis cult. I think you missed some things. Um, so for instance, uh, for verse uh, 15 um, and then 3-1, um, it goes something like, uh, and she will be saved through the childbearing if they continue in, I think it's like hope and love or something like that. Um, and again, there's a switch between uh, the singular she, which I, the closest referent is um, Eve, and Eve is, I think, being taken as um, representative, I, I would say actually of representative the women, but also um, humanity, and that's actually going to get into some of my research later. Um, and it, if they continue, uh, would be referring to, you know, again, you have a switch between Eve as representative and they plural, so, um, and that's tied to the behavior that uh, Paul's been talking about all along. But anyway, um, I think the childbearing is, um, I take the article to be actually pointing out um, the promise of the hope of salvation given the immediate context of this passage. Um, and I take it to be Christological. So back in Genesis, um, you have the promise that the um, seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so I think this is the particular childbearing because what comes next is um, saved, and that's soterios. That's um, salvation language for Paul. Um, and so I think um, he's actually saying um, here in the context of false teaching that even even there's hope for these false teachers, and there's there's the hope of salvation of Christ. So in a sense, you have Eve is metaphorically um, pregnant with the Christ child, even in her fallen state. And so that's kind of how I take um, this part of the passage. And again, like, if you just plug in um, Artemis cult and I think read it into the passage, you might come up with something a bit different. But I, I think it's better to take a both and. Um, so yes, you know, Artemis is in the backdrop here. But nonetheless, um, a high Christology is certainly in view here. And 3-1, um, which is, you know, again, oftentimes, like, pushed into the next chapter, a trustworthy statement, um, is this kind of, um, I, I kind of see it as more of a, like, a, almost a, it, it seems more liturgical, almost, in how it's used. Um, it's used, I think, two other times, at least, um, in Timothy and elsewhere um, in Paul. And usually when a trustworthy statement appears, it's accompanied with a Christological statement. And so I think... Um, this is another indicator that this verse 15 should be taken as Christological. Long rant. Nick, thoughts? Um, by and large, I never found the Artemis argument very persuasive in terms of it, but it, it's helpful. In persuasive terms of, in terms of what? 
persuasive in terms of explaining everything within the passage. Because uh, a lot of, some egalitarians will take it and kind of use it as a as spackle to fill in everything. It's like, no, it, it's it, it's not, I don't think it's that helpful in that sense. I think if you read the text just as Allison was saying, and use Artemis, therefore, as perhaps to clarify maybe the attitude of the women. Yeah. Uh, then, then that's probably a much more safe, uh, academically, academically uh, intelligible route, uh, especially uh, because you can reconstruct anything, and then the text becomes. Yeah, I mean, you can. There's, a, there's in there like people see proto gnosticism in there all over the place. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it, you know, um, but again, I do think. I, I personally do think Artemis is in the backdrop here. You know, there's a lot of themes that are touched on um, that, you know, would be, I don't know, comparable, I think you, so. I think you find that most explicitly in verse 15, but it, I think Allison is right and a lot of other people are right, is that it's asserting the supremacy of Christ over Artemis. Yes, and over the false teaching, period. Yeah, so, yeah, so uh, people that generally try to, I think, use Artemis to try to um, actually translate the passage rather than just interpret it, I've noticed um, will tend to um, translate the soterios not as salvation but to uh, preserve, which I don't think is a good <laughs> route to go, especially when it's used the other way in, in Paul. Um, and oftentimes they'll drop the article um, the childbearing in um, English, and then also there's a tendency in translations to try to smooth things out because there's an awkward transition transition between she and they, so they'll make it both they or both she. So there's that too. Yeah, and you also have the issue of of um, ah, never mind. I lost my train of thought. Sorry, Some, someone's driving really slow in front of me, and it's really distracting. Yep, and they've got a little boat in back of their truck. Yep. Hmm. Yes, adventures on the road. Thank you for your question. Waking up, Alright, Nick, I've got a question for you. Alright. Um, out of John Wesley's teachings, one of the more controversial ones, especially for Protestants, is Christian perfection. That's how it's oftentimes put. Yep. Um, what is it, and why shouldn't we be afraid of it? It's essentially the belief that the human person can be completely uh, sanctified in this life, or if you want to use a more Catholic term, uh, sainthood, if you want to say it like that, is possible in this life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, the language of the New Testament, for instance, of perfecting holiness in 2 Corinthians 7, of husbands having a sanctifying relationship with their wife and vice versa. Uh, so it means you're perfect? No, it means... All done? It means that you are free from the desire of sin. And so, therefore, you do not sin anymore. It does not mean you cannot backslide, per se. Or even that you don't commit error. You can still think 2 plus 2 equals 5. And stuff like that. But you're free. You, it's the process and teleological achievement that the human person can be set free from sin in this life. Is it, um, is it 
consent free only from sinning in, with a high hand or that. like knowingly seen, sinning or other things too? Uh, both. I think both of those are, okay. are what Wesley taught. And he said it was offensive because... Uh, I'm trying to remember the exact... Basically, he said it's, there's nothing more offensive to the Christian ear than this doctrine. And he has a whole sermon on it, which uh, is a very fascinating sermon. Well, it depends on if you're, <laughs> unless you're most a good portion of Christian start history, right? Or Roman Catholic, or Eastern Orthodox. Yeah. Or, I mean, it's it's yeah. it's not the same as theosis, you know, the Eastern Orthodox emphasis, uh, which you should talk more about. Well, yeah. Well, maybe we'll talk about that another time. But in terms of Christian perfection, it sounds like um, that's. I mean, theosis is more. Um, I guess you could say process of glorification um, but Wesley's view of Christian perfection seems to be a lot more on the um, canceling out the negative more like ceasing to sin right? which is a bit different from I would say so I mean like ceasing to sin doesn't even necessarily mean that you have positively grown in the other sense right and I think an adjacent or corresponding element is uh, the mind of Christ. Say, for example, Philippians 2, having the same mind as Christ. By living a life of humility and humbleness and pursuit of Christ and being conformed to the image of his Son. That is uh, the perfect union of, of, of humankind with Christ so that uh, being set free from sin, uh, from sin and the power and tyranny of sin... Uh, reveals that the human person is now fully in Christ, as I would say. The person is now, um, the reconciliation has been achieved, and the person now is set free from the, the, the will to sin or the desire to sin. And therefore, the corollary of that is that the person now is uh, in complete pursuit of, of the triune God without any hindrance of sin or sense of self uh of self-deception or what have you. It doesn't mean you still won't crash your car or, you know, two plus two equals five or something like that. Uh, or what about unknowingly hurt someone? Unknowingly, yes. Uh, sin, as I understand it, is the willful uh, action of a person to do something contrary to what God commands or desires. And on ignorant, yeah, Wesley even says, you're, it does not mean you're instantly free from ignorance or that you'll ever be free from ignorance. Uh, ignorance of certain things. He says, but the desire to willful sin is undone in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, I mean, that has great implications for one's eschatology, one's view of creation, one's view of anthropology. Uh, it, it's actually fairly close to the, the, the Calvinist emphasis on total depravity, but essentially it says total depravity is essentially undone by the power of the Spirit. So it's a full, it's a full you cannot have Christian perfection without the Trinity, for example. So it's a fully Trinitarian doctrine. The Son, or the Father sends, the Son achieves, and the Spirit Wait, how, Sorry, how is it related to total depravity? Uh, it's in the same way that the Calvinist emphasis on total depravity, the human person is entirely corrupted. Wesley actually held to the, a, a very similar, even narrative, the same type of mindset on, on that issue. Um, what is different is, of course, Wesley's emphasis on prevenient grace. And also, because of prevenient grace, the power of the person to recognize his or her sinful self. But of course, recognition of sin does not 
mean reconciliation or liberation has been achieved. Quite the opposite. And so, uh, the emphasis on total depravity is, is quite similar in the Calvinist and Wesleyan scheme, or this classical Wesleyanism, I should say. And so, uh, the only difference is the human person is set free in the Wesleyan scheme in this life, whereas most Reformed theologians I know, say for maybe Burkauer or Bart, uh, do see total depravity, or the, the human person as still being uh, sinful even until the end. Even though they are in Christ and uh, in the process of being sanctified, they're not fully sanctified from sin in this life. So is it fair to say that um, this is kind of, it's similar to maybe, you can think of it as a Roman Catholic um, saint, except without the, maybe the loftiness that comes with it, and maybe more um, accessible to everyone? Uh, I think that's actually true. It, it uh John Barclay's great book on, on gifts, on Chorus in the New Testament, essentially concludes that God gives this gift to everyone without merit, with, uh, without consideration of the, the worth of that human person. What makes that significant is that gift-giving in the ancient world was predicated on worth. You give gifts to people only that are worthy and no one else. For God to give us the gift of Christ, literally he's giving the gift of Christ to everyone. And so it, it flattens out the social hierarchy and the social dynamics of, of power, in a sense. And, and perfection is the same way. It means that a human person who doesn't have a seminary degree, who lives a godly life, can be perfected by the Spirit. Uh, and it's not excluded to the ivory towers or the people who can parse Greek. So, and it does, it does so without regard to gender, it does so without regard to socioeconomic status, which is a huge issue right now, it does so without regard to race or, or ethnicity. In fact, it says everyone should be in Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit can be perfected by the Holy Spirit, in perfect communion with God, and especially with one another. So. Hooray! Yep. So we have some more questions. Um, Laura Clenda asks, uh, she says that she attends a complementarian church and is considering seminary. Would it be better to attend one of those that is within our denomination? Interesting. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it depends on what you want to do and what standards your church denomination has. So I know some Presbyterian churches, they really want you to go to a Presbyterian seminary um, from their denomination, otherwise it's almost impossible to find work. So definitely go to that if, you know, if that's the direction you want to take. And again, it depends on what you want to do. I mean, if you want to be a pastor in a denomination that doesn't allow you to be a pastor, then go somewhere else because you'll have to probably leave anyway. Yeah. And then... That also, in addition to that, you have the issue of uh, if that seminary or denomination won't ordain you, then it doesn't matter if you go to their seminary or not, unless you really want to go to their seminary. Yeah, I think it all depends. Um, comes down to 
what is it that you want to do and um, is your denomination in support of what you want to do because you know maybe you do want to do something like um, child care or um, women's Bible study and it just so happens that you're you know you, you will have to um, face some gender and uh, sexist things but maybe it won't be as much of a conflict um, for you wanted for what you want to do that'd be nice yeah that'd be really nice um, let's see. Uh, Todd McKnight asks, um, what are some unexpected, subtle examples of compism that you've noticed or navigated? Is there a process treatment you use to handle these? That is a great question for you. <laughs> yeah, actually, I have, I do have a system at this point. Um, uh, so, I get a lot, let's see, so it, it can take a variety of forms. Um, I've kind of compared this in um, various ways to walking through the airport. Um, at this point, I see the line. I know where I know where this is headed, and I start taking off my shoes, leaving my socks on, taking out my laptop, putting it in the bin. <laughs> so yeah, um, the most common s stuff that I get sometimes I don't even notice. Um, I, I think actually Todd was with me once, where someone said something. I don't know, sexist to me when I was at the front desk somewhere, and I didn't even notice. Like, it, it's so it's so common, like, I don't even notice when people say rude things to me, um, indicating some sort of subordination status, um, but when it's a little more targeted and they are actually trying to put me in my place, um, first I have Nick, and my first course of action is to keep him from destroying the other person. So that's my number one go-to, but... She's very good at that. Yes. <laughs> no lives have been lost. No, sometimes he'll, like, um, stand up for me, and that's um, sometimes better. Um, but I'll turn it into joke. So there's apparently less of a stereotype of women laughing at things, and so I find if I can uh, make it into a ridiculous joke... Um, making th that way too they don't necessarily feel um, like I'm calling them out I'll just treat what they said as a joke um, it kind of shows how silly it is um, the thing that they said but also doesn't necessarily call them out in public and mean to embarrass them and you got to be very careful with that because um, it's not that you can never um, kind of snipe back um, I think it's always about your heart and your intentions um, and standing up for yourself. Um, I tend to think in terms of if you can be kind and respectful towards the other person to do it, um, but sometimes you're in a position where you really just have to stand up for yourself and... Sometimes you have to swing your weight around a bit. Yeah, and again, it's one of those things where you have to balance um, kingdom ethics with everything else. Um, Jesus said some not-so-polite things before, as did John the Baptist. Um, so it's not, we're not called to be polite, but I would say, you know, as far as part of, you know, living in a um, society, you do have to be polite for the most part, but sometimes that does have to go by the wayside. Um, as far as um, more entrenched institutional things, um, or I would say social patterns, um, interestingly, uh, yes, so, um, be careful, I'm going to have to be careful with this, um, so, actually, I guess this has come up a couple times with me, I, I, I thought it hadn't, but it has, 
where um, sometimes as a woman I'm not supposed to um, be as um, friendly um, with men um, most of the time. I'm not known as a flirt at all. I'm like the worst person even when I was single at flirting anyway so um, it's only happened in a couple of pocketed um, isolated instances. There was a time where I was at um, seminary and um, interestingly, at my time at Biola, I was able to just talk freely with, you know, other guys, because again, I, it's male-dominated, otherwise I have no friends, um, or people, peers I can talk to, and, you know, thought nothing of it. We would just, um, debate back and forth, um, it, it was no big deal, but when I went to this other seminary, um, suddenly, um, this one guy, who was interestingly maybe in his 60s, um, started making my interest in um, patristics and <laughs> the biblical canon into some other weird thing and started um, making fun of me as though I was flirting with this other young dude, um, even though he knew I was um, in love with Nick at the time, who was back at home, because um, we weren't married yet, um, and I was in another state. And it basically did serve to undermine um, my ability to have um, just good-natured conversations with other peers, um, and unfortunately I did get successfully undermined there. I did get a very heartfelt apology from this person, which was wonderful, and I mean, so he was really broken up about what he did, and, um, and I accepted the apology, but um, I will say this, um, growing out of that experience and having recently also had a bizarre um, encounter where um, it was actually a group of women that were trying to make me out to be in love with um, someone unexpected. Um, it's one of those things where it, I would say if you can illuminate what others are doing in this regard, all the better. Um, if you can initially, don't give it any press. Um, you have to kind of ignore it initially, but if it becomes a habitual thing where they're kind of after you or um, they, they're they not letting it go and they've started something, you really do have to find a subtle way to expose it if you can. Um, and so sometimes that is um, showing, just saying how ridiculous it is and like, why are you doing that? And, you know, put it on them. Um, don't be defensive because once you start the thing is once you start defending yourself um, You're already playing their game, which is a little complicated um, so for instance if you're I don't know if you're a woman and you're in a seminary context and um, Someone some other male male or female peer is making you out to be flirtatious with a You know another guy that you're having um, a good conversation with um I would not start saying, no, I'm not, I'm not being flirtatious, I swear, you know, because then all of a sudden, like, you've just given credence to what they've put on you. Um, I would instead have that other person repeat back what they said, so that they're the ones repeating it, and asking them to explain what they mean exactly, because a lot of these things thrive in the dark, um, also or behind the scenes. And you went into or an innuendo, yes, because oftentimes um, these people are not confident enough to take you head on, um, so they ha they have to hide it because that's and again this is where this is the where lies and gossip thrive. 
Um, so that's what, that would be my advice. Um, as far as institutional stuff, um, unfortunately when you're an individual in a, in a system, um, there's only so much you can do. Um, I would, in some cases, be bold and challenge the authorities. Um, and, you know, be confident because, you know what, you have rank because you're in Christ. And sometimes you can do, you know, do it nicely, understand where the authorities are coming from, and do your best to be cooperative in any way you can. Um, I've done that in some contexts. Um, and actually got um, changes done. Um, but at other times, you know, it's realizing that sometimes, you know, the system does, you know, run you over and you, in this day and age, you can go elsewhere or sometimes you're stuck and you just have to try to thrive and survive the best you can with what you have. And in that case, um, pull all your internal resources that you can possibly muster. Um, call friends, call relatives, call anyone that's supportive, um, just so that you have your head, um, somewhere that's clear. Um, when I went, uh, I went to another seminary for only, um, one, one semester, I knew two days in when they started talking about slaying the liberals in their lairs, that this wasn't the place for me, because um, I had liberal friends um, and Christian mentors, and um, I did not think that God would want me to think of them as um, enemies to slay. Um, <laughs> so I was pretty sure I wanted out and um, started applying to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School as fast as I could to get out of there. Um, in that context, um, it was difficult because I was constantly being berated with um, messages of, you don't belong here, um, overtly and subtly. Um, so sometimes people would say as much. Um, sometimes it would just be awkward silences every time I said, I, they asked me what my major was um, very nervously because there were very few women and a lot of the women just wanted to find husbands. Um, I think I only found one woman there that was there to seriously study patristics. Um, but yeah, the others just wanted husbands, and I was, I think, one of the only MDivs that was a woman, and, um, really, in that kind of context, I just, I had nowhere, I had nowhere to go. It was weird. Um, I even noticed that, um, my African-American brothers were also oddly on the, um, margins, I, I'd say physically, like, so everyone else would be inside, they'd be outside, in the corners, like, it was just very weird, um, experience for me, and, um, I found, I actually found a lot of friends in them, um, I found friends in other outsiders, um, and I, I called other people that were not in that context, and would talk to them, I would process it with them, and sometimes you have, the best you can do is stay sane, in an insane context. And then on top of that, I was like being berated with messages that I was liberal for being Arminian, which was interesting because um, I wasn't even that like, I don't know, that committed per se, you know? Um, so, yeah, sometimes. Weren't you a radical for believing women could be deacons? Oh yeah, so <laughs> another one of those things about reading your context. So I, uh, um, I was in a preach, oh, no, no, I was in a pastoral leadership class because that was part of the, um, MDiv curriculum, but I wasn't, it was very clear I wasn't actually supposed to be there because I was a female, and we even had our own female dean, um, not officially, 
but we were all told, yes, this is the dean for the women, because we needed our separate dean. Anyway, um, so I was in this awkward um, pastoral leadership class, um, even though everyone knew I was not supposed to be a pastor, and yada, yada, yada. Um, and I got to write a little paper. I'm like, well, what should I write on? What would be... I'm like, you know what? They could not handle me writing something on can women be pastors. Let's just do deacons. I'm like, this will be just edgy enough that they, yeah. And and I called it right. So I did a little paper, can women be deacons? And I explored First um, Timothy 3 at the time. And I remember I was looking through it. And I was like, wait a minute. I was looking at Greek and I wasn't like as confident in my Greek then. I was like, there's no masculine pronouns. Where'd they go? And I was like, I must be, I must be crazy, you know. But I, I looked. I looked into it later, and when I saw some other scholars noticing the same thing, I felt a little more confident. Um, anyway, the teacher thought it was like, ooh, cutting edge, like <laughs> I don't know, dangerous, but in a in in a slightly acceptable way. So, you know, knowing your context, and a lot of my arguments in that paper could have easily gone to female pastors too. And so, let's just say, you know be smart about it and sometimes you are just kind of a I don't know a cog <laughs> unfortunately um, sometimes you are just kind of trapped and it's um, being smart and noticing when are you trapped when can you do something what are the risks and sometimes again being committed to um, I think I talked about this before but being committed to loss um, more than just saying this might, this horrible thing might happen to me, but saying this horrible thing could very well happen to me and I am committed to experiencing this because I have this other goal. Um, whether it's, I, my goal is to survive, maybe my goal is to expose or illuminate what's going on, maybe I want to protect someone else, but it's, it's knowing, it's kind of like maybe I got to cut off my right hand or my right pinky um, to preserve my life, you know. So that's the mentality I say you kind of need going in. Otherwise, um, you will spend needless time protecting something that you're willing, that you should be willing to give up. Um, so yes, a little abstract, but hope this helps. Starcraft, but it was at, I didn't grow up with video games, and I only got to play it at my cousin's. Yeah. And so I got like, remember I was, when I was, um, I, I had a high fever, and I was hallucinating the video game characters? Yep. That's what I was hallucinating. Yeah, I remember. I remember. I remember. Yeah. 
basically I played a crap ton of video games, um, got this very high fever, and had to climb this grand staircase in a delusional state, and was hallucinating video game characters all around me, and that was not fun as a kid. But it, it sounds really entertaining in hindsight. It was pretty terrible. Like we're imagining like Zerglings, like a they were everywhere, all around me. rush in your dreams. I knew they weren't like real, but they were like everywhere. They really probably should have just dumped me in a, ba a cold bathtub. Frankly, that's. I'll, I'll join her for a few seconds and bring you back up. Well, yeah, I. I was, that's pretty feverish. Yeah, I, I, I played. Uh, what did I play? I, I played a lot of. I, I didn't get into computer games. Like, I liked point-and-click and some point-and-click games, like uh, Spy Fox and some of that old stuff, you know, like entertainment. But I was really in the N64. I still, we still have that at home, actually. Mm. Uh, my Mario Kart, Super Smash Brothers, Jet Force Gemini, all the fun stuff. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't really play a lot of video games, actually, unless it's like blow-up stuff video games. Mm. So there's the difference between us. I like to strategize and take over things gradually. Nick's liked, Nick just likes to blow things up. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. Not that sophisticated. Like, just, no, oh, I want to blow stuff up. I play video games to, like, blow off steam and then, alright, now I can go back to reading the Bible. For some reason, strateg strategizing about taking over maps calms me. I mean, you do have terrible dreams of being a dictator someday. No, I don't. Yes, you do. That was my childhood dream, to be an empress. I just wanted to be a hockey player when I was a kid. So I could hit people. I just wanted to know what was higher than a princess, and then what was higher than a queen. And that's what I wanted to be. Why not just be an emperor? Why do you have to be an empress? Because I'm a, a woman, and empress can be without a emperor. So she can A queen is usually tied to a king that has a higher rank. Yeah. Hence, empress seemed to be a fitting title for my future career. What do, what do you call a... I also wanted to be a ballerina, but call, that didn't work out. What do you call an empress who likes uh, coffee? Empress, empressa. Dad jokes. Alright, we're in like north, where are we? We're north uh, New Mexico, driving up through the hills, so basically... Everyone's like, Breaking Bad, New Mexico, red rocks everywhere. Nope, this is like trees. Like, well, we did pass a bunch of that. Yeah, we went through Breaking Bad country, and I think we even saw Heisenberg, but... We, okay, I'm not... We saw this, like, uh, slow-flying bright disc in the sky that hovered around and then disappeared. Yeah, it's literally... It, it showed up. <laughs> it looked like an airplane or something like that that like, just disappeared. Just like, like, why not? Why not? Right. It wasn't moving like an airplane. I mean, it's New Mexico, so who knows what they're doing here. We're just like, you know what? Sure. Why not? I mean, I felt it tingling like the car was gonna get picked up and all that kind of stuff, but I don't think anything really bad was happening. But I was kind of worried about it for a second. I'm too young to die. I don't want to. I don't want to go into space. Well, maybe we already got like I don't know, beamed up, and we just don't know it. Maybe. We're just gonna find a bunch of no, we're, bizarre we're holes. We are clones right now. We're the clones of what they uh, mm. what they brought up. Yes, we also um, hit a huge, huge um, lightning storm In on the way. Yeah. yeah, and it was raining. And you said it like it. You saw it hit the street? Yeah, it struck the uh, the street in front of us about 200 feet. 
it, I couldn't tell if it struck the car in front of us, because the car swerved and like freaked out, there were sparks, but the car kept driving, so I'm assuming it didn't get hit, because I'm pretty certain that would have like shorted everything out of the car. But yeah, it's it struck right in front of us, I was just like, oh, kiddo. Yep, so we are on our way to visit our, well, we already visited our friend Kyle in Arizona, and now we are on our way to go to, um... We're driving to Larkspur, which is basically right between Denver and uh, Colorado Springs. Yep, it's for our friend David's wedding. Yep. Yep, and Nick is going to get the awesome privilege of going to a bachelor party. A bachelorette party. (laughs) A bachelor party. And he gets to fight David. I was telling him he had to prepare for his cage fighting match against a coworker of mine, but it didn't work out. So he's gonna go fight David instead. I don't. I don't I'm a pacifist. Like I don't fight people. Yes. Like, so there will be much fighting and well, no, cigars and, and screaming. Okay. Well, if no, we, no if, cigars. If we fight after like we've had like ten beers, then it'll be very entertaining, and I think I could actually go for that. Yes. Well, I think we'll see if David decides to fight you or not. I don't think David would want to fight me. It'd be too easy. Basically, I would just start tapping this and he gets close to me. Right? Nope, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. I don't want to die. <laughs> you might get to fight Cedric. No, I'm not fighting CJ. CJ will kill me. CJ's body's technically classified under the United States government as a lethal weapon. Yeah, Cedric's kind of awesome. CJ could, like, kill me just by looking at me because I'm pretty certain he's got, like, drone strike and, you know, stuff implemented in his eyes. So if he just blinks the right way, I'm incinerated instantly. Alright, Nick and I are doing a little bit of easy hiking in Colorado. It's easy. In Castle Rock, about 15 miles south of Denver, I think. Yep, so if you hear this little crunch, 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 that's because we're walking. Yep. But we thought we would discuss maybe just an everyday issue. Um, I know it's come up for me recently, and I mean, I think everyone has to deal with this, and that's... How do you deal with people that are actively gossiping, slandering, or doing all sorts of things of that kind to you? Whether on a massive level, a minor level, anything in between. So Nick, what what are some things that you've had to deal with in terms of um, people trying to, let's just say, cast a little doubt on who you are, character-wise or otherwise? Ah... When I was first exploring the ordination of women as a topic, for example, there's other issues, but it's the most pertinent one, at least. Uh, word got around in my circle of friends that I was the guy with the girlfriend. With the girlfriend? The girlfriend. Uh, knew nothing. They, they never met you. They knew nothing about you, except you were a, probably a crazy feminist. Well, and frankly, too, you got, got stuff like weird things about your non-existent at the time, sex live. Yeah, that's true. that was fun. Intimated that I like to be dominated because I'm with a feminist, which was odd. Still don't like it. Uh, yeah, we were dating and we weren't doing anything like that. Yep. Saved it till marriage. Totally worth it. But yeah, people talking behind my back about that sort of thing, intimating. I like to be dominated. I don't have a spine. What have you? Which is very odd because those people had a debate with me on the ordination of women. My spine comes out very quickly. Yeah, they seem to avoid anything factual. Yeah. So yeah, that was that. Hello. Uh, hello. 
Oh, cute dogs. Oh, thank you. <laughs> hey, cockers? Uh, cock a cocker. Oh, nice. <laughs> All right, continue. Yeah, that was really, those were the two big ones. Uh, no interest in hearing my reason. My reasoning was assumed, and it was given the worst possible interpretive slant. And, yeah. That's also why he took my last name, by the way. <laughs> yeah, because I won. In the it. end. Yeah. Um, he just kind of said, enough. Here's the stand I'm taking. Yep. How'd you deal with it in the moment when you hear this kind of stuff? Usually I let it go. Yeah. That's what you got to do by default, I think. Because yep. otherwise I get to be the uh, cliche who says, check your privilege. And... That never goes well, and I don't like doing that anyway. And really, overall, I think it's best to just kind of turn away slights, not make a big deal out of them. Yeah, I mean... Don't take them to heart and don't hold it against them if you can help it. There's no reason to. It doesn't make them better. It doesn't make me better. So just let it kind of roll off your back, like water off a duck's back. Yeah. And there's times to be assertive, I think, and to challenge. Other times where it's better just let things go. And sometimes when you um, address crazy ideas, you end up giving credence to them inadvertently. Yep. So have you uh, experienced anything similar to that? Yep. Um, as you know, um, quite a bit. Um, I'm fairly used to... It's, hard, it's sad to say, but... Bizarre, um, oh, there's a dog. Hello, dog. <laughs> he just came in, said hi, and left. <laughs> oh my gosh, how cute. Um, that is a good distraction. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm used to being misinterpreted. Um, it's usually more cosmetic. Um, it's usually assumptions made because of my gender. Um, I, early in life, I had to deal with a lot of, I'd say, gaslighting from mm -hmm. an abusive um, individual when I was younger. Um, but yeah, recently, yeah, I actually had to deal with a lot of um, just gossip and I, I would say a little bit more than passing. Um, it was a little more, well, actually a lot more targeting and um, there was someone that was actually, actually a couple of them actually out to get me. You don't assume that going into a situation yeah. and it's something you have to sometimes discover and grab that leash for oh. me? Sure. <laughs> she got away oh she me. loves the walk and people thank you hello <laughs> yeah i would say um it, the situation changes um when you start getting more predatory behavior and I don't want to make this um, into something else because um, there's different kinds. Um, and of course it's different if you have someone that's stalking you or doing other weird things. But sometimes you get individuals that target you for whatever reason. Um, I had a mix of reasons. There were a couple that I think they did it just for fun. Yeah. Um, one I think was actually um, maybe a little delusional actually and, and jealous. Um, which is kind of weird to say, but... I, I, I truly do believe he would be... Hey! Did you guys go up? Yeah. Did you guys go up? Yeah. 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 Ye
No, no, yeah, we're taking a break. Oh, that's nice. Yep. Just got the nice freeze right here. Yeah, when you get people that are actually targeting you, the situation changes because it's not something you can just let go. Um, you have to try to actively maintain your sanity and I would say um, getting other network connections involved if you can from the outside. Yeah, and, may, and you have to really watch your own integrity as well, because um, especially if you're working with people who are actively distorting everything you say, it's very easy to want to strike back. Um, but at the same time, there's that weird dynamic where you can't just um, let things pass anymore because they're not going to let you. Um, they're going to keep coming after you, um, either in subtle. In, in my case, it was they were doing it primarily behind my back, and I had to read <laughs> a bunch of awkward silences and um, notice, you know, whispers, and there were other cues. Like, I'm pretty good at reading body language. Um, so I picked this up pretty quickly and had to piece everything together. Um, but basically, you end up having to be in a position where you have to strike back, um, but you have your ethical dilemmas where you have to essentially keep modeling Christ and keeping your trying to keep your heart in line with God's heart and um, the rule of love being still primary. But at the same time, you have to protect yourself. And I think that's rooted in your identity in Christ and your, your inherent work, worth in Christ. And um, for me, um, I ended up having, I just decided to go, um, I ended up deciding to dedicate towards uh, my efforts towards um, exposing them. Um, I realized I was going to have to lose something, um, and I believe in being committed towards loss at times. Because if you just think in terms of you might lose something, be ready for it, it's not enough. If you want to actually expose what's happening so that it stops, because it won't stop otherwise, you have to be committed towards taking a hit. Um, and I won't get into too many details, um, I'd say the hit I had to take was very minor. But what I ended up doing was just, um, I would say using some martial art principles that I learned, and that's using their own energy against them. That way, you don't have to engage in the same behavior that they're doing. Um, you're not going to go out of your way to slander. You're not going to lie. Turn the other yeah, so you, you turn the other cheek um, whenever possible. But if they're going to come <laughs> running at you with a fist or knife, you're going to bring them further that way. And... It kind of reminds me by analogy, the passage in Romans where God gives them over. Um, yeah. It's kind of, they're, they're sailing one way, he pushes them further. Yeah, they're already on fire, he just throws the gas on them. Yeah, and so what I did was I would just ever so subtly try to take them further um, than where they were going. That way they started appearing on the radar. Um, so if I had one individual constantly twisting what I would say, I would just readily bring up the context. Um, and she made a claim um, aimed at trying to discredit me, um, and it was insincere. I would just bring back that claim and be willing, since I wanted to be open and honest, I decided I had nothing to lose. <laughs> so yes, let's talk about that. And let's clarify and explain. Yes, let, let's do that. And I knew she didn't want to, and frankly, I didn't want to rehash things. Um, this was in the presence of leadership. <laughs> but I knew she would shy away from it because she was not sincere. And sure enough, 
um, I think that exposed her whole project for what it was. Um, yeah. It was not a nice situation, and I will say this, even though I had been in tons of these situations before, when I was younger primarily, and thought a lot about them, and was, I'd say had a lot of skills inherent that were good for fighting them, such as strategic thinking, analytical ideation, meaning information gathering and wanting to learn, and highly interpersonal. Um, I would say God was definitely also at work. I think if you pray to God, he will, I, he likes to help sometimes. I don't know, I don't know why he chooses to do things sometimes and why he doesn't, but he definitely helps this time. And I have this sneaking suspicion he actually put me here for a reason. Um, I, I suspect he kind of put me in harm's way because this horrible thing had happened to an individual before me um, who was successfully, um, I would say, maligned as sensitive. Um, these people were very good at spinning narratives and getting them to stick on their victims. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my advice. Anything to add, Nick? Nope. He's yawning because we're in higher altitude and climbing up a hill. But at least we're surrounded by animals. <laughs>